Hello and welcome back to Leader Up, a podcast of Army Management Staff College. Leader Up is a professional leadership conversation where we discuss a broad range of leadership and leader development topics with an emphasis on the Army civilian profession. I'm your host, David Howie. Seeing and accurately assessing the changing topography of the global security environment is a challenge that has existed for several thousand years. Warfare of the future will be markedly different from warfare of the present and even vastly more different from warfare of the past. America's enemies around the world are fighting a different type of warfare that many American citizens and service members do not recognize or understand. In today's episode of Leader Up, we're joined by Mr. Steve Bannock, the Director of Army Management Staff College, who's going to talk about the challenges America faces today. And he will do this by discussing his view of grand strategy in the context of global entanglement and multi-reality warfare. He will also discuss strategic maneuver and how it has evolved over the past 30 years and how adversaries to the United States are using new indirect warfighting capabilities to fundamentally weaken our country, change our very way of life, and eliminate the ability of the U.S. military to win another war. So, Mr. Bannock, thank you for being with us today on Leader Up. Hey, thank you, Dave. It's uh, it's a real honor to be here, and uh, and thank you for all that you do uh, with uh, with these podcasts. Okay, thank you, sir. We appreciate your time. Let's start with uh, something we talked about in the opening: this notion of grand strategy. What is grand strategy, and why is it important to the U.S. Army in terms of winning wars? In its simplest form. Uh, you know, grand strategy is a long-term uh, schema that's pursued at the highest levels by a nation to further its uh, its interests. It's a, it's a whole of nation approach uh, to conducting uh, warfare, and there's really you know kind of two uh, key things I would say that uh, that we're trying to achieve. Number one is leverage. Uh, we're we're trying to create leverage so that we can do what we want to do when we want to do it. And the, and the second piece, in, in particular, within the context of, of the current uh, global security milieu, is is creating uh, the most effective learning system possible, all right? The learning system in the context of a grand strategy is the weapon system. When you, when you think about cyber, uh, social media, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and the gamut of, of new capabilities that we've seen really explode. Uh, over the last uh, 15 years. So the global entanglement and the multi-reality warfare uh, construct as a grand strategy is being artfully orchestrated by a, a myriad of adversaries to the United States of America. And they are pursuing an indirect strategic maneuver rubric that uh, most of us can't see on a daily basis. It's like opaque warfare. Uh, so we, we have to be very mindful uh, of not just things seen, but things that are unseen. So, you know, by way of, you know, historical review, containment uh, was our last uh, grand strategy. It was author- authored by George uh, uh, Keenan, you know, uh, around the 1946-1947 timeframe uh, to uh, contain uh, communism, right? Uh, so uh, it, it was our last uh, effective uh, strategy. 
you know, one could make uh, an argument that the global war on terror was grafted into the containment strategy as a kind of a 2.0 after after 9-11. But the main point is, is that the United States lacks a current and coherent whole of nation strategy for a time such as this that is able to mobilize the national industrial base uh, to win uh, and, and win wars and, and conduct the uh, strategic maneuver uh, that's required to do so. So, you know, when we look at global entanglement and multi-reality warfare from a grand strategy uh, standpoint, uh, our adversaries are using it today. It has enveloped our army. It has enveloped the Department of Defense, and it's compromised our national industrial base, which is how the United States wins war. We win wars, and the last time we won a war was in World War II, and we had a homogeneous national industrial base that we draw all our power for. So, you know, of note, you know, the U.S. tech, you know, tech companies that reside in China, as an example, are not the same U.S. tech companies which reside in the mainland United States. And never in, in, the, in the history of our country, certainly not in my lifetime, has our national industrial base been more compromised through foreign entanglement uh, to the extent that we see today? And when I talk about entanglement, you know, the phenomena that I'm addressing is entanglement in the full range of science, technology, engineering, academia, uh, and, and, and the like. And, and so it's, it's uh, broad, it's pervasive, it's, and it's nonstop. Uh, so this is, you know, in the context of warfare, what's emerged is a new strategic system uh, that is larger than multi-domain operations concepts by orders of magnitude. Uh, and, you know, I just want to make an inject here. What I'm saying is not binary. We need multi-domain operations as an operational theater level construct. We needed air land battle as an operational theater construct. We needed unified land operations as an operational theater construct to win campaigns, battles, and engagements. Okay, so it's not a binary discussion. All right. What I'm highlighting here is that multi-domain operations is a smaller system that has been enveloped by this new strategic warfighting system that our adversaries have created. And from a systems theory standpoint, it's very, very difficult or impossible for a smaller subordinate system to fight and beat the larger system. I mean, it's just theoretically uh, un untenable. So, you know, we've seen air land battle. We've seen uh, uh, the effects that it had in Desert Shield and Desert Storm and how powerful it was. Uh, but we've also seen going all the way back, I mentioned, uh, you know, World War II back to, you know, the theater war in Korea, the theater war in Vietnam. And we're at war for 19 years and running now. Uh, you know, what, what I see as the major capability gap is the lack of a, a grand strategy that incorporates a, a new strategic maneuver construct for the United States of America uh, to fight and, and, and win the nation's wars. So, you know, to, to be able to win the nation's wars, uh, you know, we, we've got to be able to mobilize the national industrial base under a new grand strategy. And, you know, our, our combat co power has always historically come from our national industrial base. We won World War II because we had a bigger and, and better war fighting uh, machine than the, in Germany and Japan. You know, and as we go through this podcast, uh, you know, I'm going to introduce, you know, new mental models and, 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 and things. Uh, and, and I'm going to talk you know, specifically about virtual battle space. And it's a very, very real thing. Virtual battle space has a structure, a set of capabilities, a flow of information and data 
that comes out in, 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 in time and timing that none of us can control. I mean, it's really, you know, anarchy in, in its truest form. But virtual battle space is a very real thing, and we've got to be able to embrace new mental models and conceptualize battle space in a different way or we'll never win. You know, the French in 1919 couldn't conceptualize Blitzkrieg, uh, but they were, they were totally crushed by it. The concept, the new mental model that the Germans created in, in, uh, and deployed against the French in 1940. So our ability to embrace new mental models and new thinking is, is, is very, very in, in, important. So we, you know, we've got to be able to, uh, reimagine battle space, uh, as something that, uh, you know, I, I describe as, uh, being in, in our homes, in our offices, and at all points in between. Uh, and it's, and it's a, it, and it's a never ending war, uh, virtual battle space never shuts down as, as you know, as you see, uh, occasionally in, in physical battle space where it's more episodic, uh, you know, type fighting. And, you know, the other point I'd make here uh, while, while talking about this is that most of the adversary of the, of the United States uh, do not wear uniforms. I mean, they're, 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 they don't look like uh, traditional combatants. And that's hard for people uh, to, to, to understand and to rationalize because we view, in, in a historical sense, we view soldiers as combatants and that's, they go off and fight wars in a faraway place, et cetera. That's all changed. Uh, we're, we're, all of us, uh, are, are being, uh, assaulted uh, every single day and, and we don't know it. It's just coming in, in a different way that I'll describe here as, as we go through here. Hey, Dave, my, my final thought on this, uh, uh on this particular question on grand strategy, it relates to our adversary. So what happens when the primary adversaries to the United States of America uses large scale combat operations and direct kinetic maneuver? on traditional physical battlefields as the centerpiece for their strategic deception strategy against the U.S. military. You know, all the while, they're conducting uh, nonstop indirect strategic maneuver in global virtual battle space at pennies on the dollars to defeat the United States without ever firing a shot. And, and that is exactly what's happening today, Dave. And so having said all of that, uh, I, I'd like to take you back in the past and get your reaction to this quote. And the quote is from Sun Tzu, the uh, Chinese military philosopher. And the quote is, the supreme art of war is to subdue the enemy without fighting. And so I just want to get your reaction to that and then ask you, how is a quote from roughly 2,500 years ago during the Eastern Zhao dynasty relevant to this discussion of modern warfare. The quote's the centerpiece of uh, our adversary's grand strategy, you know, in particular China, uh, but others as well. I mean, the, the whole goal here is to, to win wars without ever, ever firing a shot. I mean, that's, that's the objective of, uh, you know, every great commander. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the, the world, you know, has experienced, you know, exponential change over, over the last 30 years. Uh, and, you know, you, you got to ask yourself the question, have we changed exponentially over the last 30 years to keep pace with, with, uh, with the adversaries in, in the, uh, in, in the global security milieu that, uh, that we operate in, you know, you know, Clausewitz, uh, one, one of the great captains of, uh, of, of military history, you know, he talked to us, 
very very plainly about the the first and and and, and supreme uh, most far-reaching act of judgment that a statesman or a commander you know has to make is is to establish by test the kind of war on which they are embarking. So, what type of war are we fighting today? It's not Desert Shield and Desert Storm, all right. I'm, I'm, you know that 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 is a, a requirement. It's it's fundamental and great power competition in physical battle space, but there's also a great power competition uh, that is far more pervasive in virtual battle space uh, that we don't have uh, the capabilities for. You know, when we think about, uh, you know, where we're at today, uh, you know, in, in our army and, and look back in history, we had, you know, we had a citizen soldier army in 1770, 1775 when, you know, the, the people that fought on Concord and Lexington. Uh, and then, then that changed, uh, you know, to a conscript army that we we kept until it was 1973 until that didn't work in, in the Vietnam era. And then we embraced the, uh, you know, uh, all volunteer force, which is what we have today. And I would, I would argue, all right, that we need a, a fourth uh, evolution of our army. We need, we need an army that has a, a different form, a different set of functions and a different logic set of capabilities uh, to fight and, and win the nation's wars. And, and the test for that is, are we winning wars? And it, I mean, how long are we going to go uh, into this? I mean, we're 19 years into the current war. I, and I would actually make that plural wars because we're fighting uh, terrorism, physical terrorism, predominantly conducted by civilians in physical battle space. But there's virtual terrorism going on in, in, in the virtual battle space that, I've, that I talked about, uh, you know, early on. So. Uh, we, we, there's a reframing uh, that that needs to to occur, and and to maintain, you know, a professional army, we've got to we have to approach it from a from an educational standpoint first of all. How how has the theory of war evolved and changed? All right, so we've got to teach people how to think and not what to think. We've got to educate for uncertainty to deal with complex adaptive problem solving. We we've got to continue to train people for certainty and to deal with technical problems, but you know, the, you know, fundamentally, the problem typology for our army and our nation has shifted from something technical, uh, technical problem solving that we're very familiar with. We have familiar uh, patterns of solutions that we could easily apply to these things from processes to this complex adaptive problem uh, norm uh, that, that we don't have familiar patterns for that requires uh, different mental models uh, driven by, you know, high-end educational programs. Uh, to be able to do that, uh, so you know when when you know, we we look at leading change and and uh, we we've got to approach it from a cognitive standpoint, reconcile what's going on in virtual battle space and physical battle space, in order to do it. You know, Singe talks about in his fifth discipline, maintain personal mastery. As an army, our job is to fight and win the nation's wars. We need to do that through the creation of new mental models, restructure our learning and how we're learning. Learning is the coin of the realm. Whoever has the best learning system as a weapon system can make the most effective decisions and win. And we have to think in terms of systems, a systems theory to create a shared vision that can can allow us to uh, to win the nation's war. So uh, there's a number of things that we've got uh, in front of us. You know, Clausewitz talked about winning the ideal war, the tank war. Uh, 
today in modern terms, you know, and the real war, you know, the political war that, uh, uh, you know, generals and, 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 and statesmen are, are, are confronted with. But I would tell you uh, that we got to win the idea war. Uh, we need to embrace new concepts like anti-fragility, uh, figure out how uh, our army can be more anti-fragile. If we don't develop a synthetic soldier immunity capability where we have multiple levels of synthetic immunity built into a soldier's warfighting capability, the survivability of our soldiers is, is going to be very, very low on the next battlefield. And that's going to also lead us to autonomous leadership construct where soldiers are going to be able to buy, you know, you know, machine learning uh, devices that are going to help them learn and make decisions in a matter of seconds. And, you know, lastly on this subject is this reconcili- reconciliation of asymmetric ethics. You know, what are the limits of tolerance and zones of accept- acceptability in virtual battle space? Are, are we going to create and frame a name that determines action that we take either in virtual space or in physical battle space against an adversary who perpetrated something uh, against us. So, um, you know, there's, there's a lot there, uh, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, what I'm, what I'm offering here is, is a fundamental reframe uh, of our conceptualization of, uh, of, of how it is we're, we're thinking about warfare and how our adversaries are thinking about warfare. And again, I'm basing all of this, most of it, on what our adversaries are doing to us. And that, that kind of leads me into uh, the next topic I wanted to ask you about. And it's a, a phrase that I've heard you use. It's problem framing. Uh, armies win wars because they're able to accurately frame the problems that they face and also to frame their opportunity. So what is problem framing and how uh, has it been relevant over let's say the past hundred years of warfare problem theory uh is you know goes hand in hand with learning theory right and and our ability to frame systems of problems and systems of opportunity that are dynamic and constantly changing is is very very important you know here to four you know the 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 primary problem typology construct we we're dealing with are are technical problem situations right uh just you know destroying you know the, the 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 tank army, the anti uh, you know access aerial denial stuff. Uh, you know the you know the technical solutions like hypersonic weapons and 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 the like. Okay, well all of that has changed. The army hasn't recognized this change. The society, for that matter, hasn't changed uh, because we're still embracing uh, many industrial age systems processes uh, that are collapsing under the weight of the complexity that we're experiencing you know, over the last 30 years. Uh, and I'll talk about, uh, if, if I get a chance here, the, you know, the collapsing industrial age archetypes uh, that I see uh, that, uh, that are being attrited. But uh, so, what you, you know, when we talk about problem framing, we, we've got, it's not the problem, right? It is when you're talking about a technical problem, but that's not the world we live in anymore. So we're, when we talk about problem framing, we're talking about framing complex adaptive systems of problems. Okay, and Ron Heifetz talks about this in his book Leadership Without Easy Answers. He talks about technical problems that I just mentioned. He talks about technical adaptive problems, problems that have a technical component and a biological human adaptive piece to it. And then the third and, and most difficult piece is this notion of of complex adaptive problems, uh, you know, that are that are characterized 
uh, by variety in the system that produces emergent activity that by and large is, is unpredictable. And then, you know, lastly, you know, just from a human behavior standpoint, uh, oftentimes, you know, we focus on tactical problem symptoms. And I use an iceberg metaphor when, you know, you, you, you see kind of what, you know, this, this, what is perceived as a problem, this incident above the waterline, it's just a representation of a deeper root problem uh, that we're not seeing because we're not using the right mental model, uh, the ability to create space and, you know, ask questions uh, to get to, uh, you know, the, the root system of problems, the tensions in the system, the propensity of the system, the system of power that's driving all this stuff. You know, it, it takes a design framework, uh, iterative learning uh, and, and probing by way of questions to be able to address that. And so talking uh, talking about problem framing, can you discuss or identify some historical examples of when armies and countries, nations have framed wars or seen wars incorrectly? And what were the consequences of, of those examples? I, I already, you know, talked about the, you know, the French and the Germans, but I'll just expand on that. So from 1919 to 1939, in that interwar period, uh, I mean, the French approach to warfare was that they, they, they spent more money than all the allies combined. They built the Magellan Line and built their entire uh, global schema on firepower, right? All right. And they essentially prepared for the last war that, that we won, World War, World War I. The Germans, conversely, in 1919 and 1939, developed a completely different approach that we all know about. It's blitzkrieg. It's a new form of warfare. If they had a better strategic, you know, national industrial base and better, you know, war machine, I mean, we, we may all be speaking a different language today. But so the French prepared for war in one way. The Germans, you know, which, which is what I'm advocating, reframed their conceptualization for what war ought to be and what war could be, and they produced Blitzkrieg. Similarly, you know, in 2003, you know, the U.S. approach uh, to, and I, I was in that war, I was in the 1990-91 war, and I saw them both, uh, which is why I'm using it as an example. You know, our our war in 2003, in the Gulf War in 2003, was 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 so familiar with what we did in 1991 when we invaded uh, Iraq. Uh, you know, back then, okay, it was basically fighting the last war we won. And what did our adversary do to us in in 2003? The Iraqi people approach was. Now, we're not going to go toe-to-toe with them. We're going to introduce you know, what we call counterinsurgency operations. And we saw suicide bombers and a whole range of things that didn't fit in the large-scale combat operations rubric. Okay? And then we had, we, you know, it took us about three years. We had to reframe in 2006 and 2007 under General Petraeus' leadership. We reframed the problem situation, introduced COIN, and, and we're able to, you know, uh, you know, fight our way out of that war to, to where it is today. And I will tell you, you know, from a 2020 standpoint, our U.S. approach to war, large-scale combat operations, is very much, you know, akin to what we're doing in, in 2003. You know, we've, we've embraced, uh, re-embraced electronic warfare and signals intelligence that I used as a captain uh, back in 1991 out in front of the 24th Division TAC up on the Iraqi border. Uh, so reinventing new capabilities. Uh, that, I mean, that's all good, and we're grafting cyber into it. But there's a, you know, from a threat perspective, and what the threat will do to us, I, I, I predict, is they, they are developing right now, a, an indirect, uh, virtual 
warfare approach that will include cyber social media, be driven by artificial intelligence and machine learning, employ robotics, electronic warfare, signals intelligence, mass employment of nanotechnologies and, and space operations, okay, uh, that will ensure, number one, that they have assured connectivity, persistent surveillance, and ubiquitous exploitation capabilities over every aspect of our not only our armies, but our country to, to achieve in time, virtual colonization and social control. What we're going to experience in the next war will not look anything like large-scale combat operations. The goal, going back to the Sun Tzu quote, is to win the war without ever fighting the war. So there's multiple examples of what countries going into war expected to do and what was thrust upon them. And let's talk about another topic that that I've heard you address, and it's... uh something called great power competition. Uh, and I'd like to hear uh, your ideas about great power competition and quote unquote, the American way of war. What are the implications for the United States army and the United States regarding great power competition as it exists today? So, uh, and, and again, not a binary uh, subject, right? Uh, so there is a tremendous great power comp- competition in physical battle space. And I, as I alluded to earlier, I think it's the centerpiece for the, uh, for the multiple adversaries that we have as a centerpiece for their, for their grand strategy. Uh, you know, the other, the other piece of great power competition that we're not talking about is the great power competition in virtual battle space that, it, it, you know, it, it utilizes all the, all the capabilities I just, I just mentioned a second ago from, from cyber you know, through nano uh, technologies in, in space operations and everything in between, right? So there are actually two great power competitions. One is is physical, and we see it, that which is seen. The other one is unseen, and our adversaries want us to believe that there's nothing here, nothing to be worried about. Uh, all the while, 24-7, 365, uh, they are thoroughly entangling themselves into our systems uh, to uh, ensure connectivity. Uh, to ensure surveillance and data collection, to assure e- exploitation, and every day, you know, leading to virtual colonization and social control of of the very systems that run our country. And so, when you transition, you know, to you know the the American way of war, uh, and again, uh, huge fan of of a, a new operational uh, maneuver construct by way of multi-domain operations because we need it. Uh, you know, we, we, we did very well with airland battle uh, doctrine, uh, updated that in, in the form of unified land operations, which is actually our current doctrine. But, but those doctrines and those concepts are theater level. They're, they're, it's a smaller system. It's a theater level construct, a theater level system of fighting and winning campaigns and conducting tactical maneuver at the unit level to win battles and engagement. So what we've got to create is a larger strategic maneuver system all right, that is driven by our national industrial base. All right, and again, the the grand strategy is created to create leverage throughout. We never lose leverage. We create a learning system. All right, that is more powerful than any other country or threat in the world, and that learning system allows us to make anticipatory decisions, which will enable us to win wars. 
And this kind of sounds like we're going back to what we talked about earlier, problem framing uh, and, and our ability to to see the problems accurately. So let me just ask you this from a problem framing standpoint, where do you see cognitive dissonance and cognitive entrenchment in our conceptualization of modern warfare? Yeah. So, you know, I just, I'll just uh, uh, flex off and just, uh, you know, try to answer this question by defining maneuver. So, you know, classic uh, maneuver, physical maneuver is, uh, you know, fires, you know, direct, direct, you know, the direct approach to warfare, kinetic warfare, plus movement, you know, movement in air, land, sea, and, and, and space, I mean, physical environments, uh, you know, you know, fire plus maneuver, you know, equals, you know, tactical, uh, direct physical maneuver. Right. And, you know, the characteristics, you know, of physical maneuver is, is it's visible. It, it, it builds on itself. It's very temporal, episodic. Uh, it's, it's kinetic, it's, it's centralized and it produces tactical effects. It's like the last 19 years of warfare, a myriad of tactical effects will never win the strategic war. I mean, Harry Summers wrote a book about that. Okay. You know, juxtapose that, uh, with, uh, you know, an articulation, uh, you know, of, of, of strategic maneuver. All right. And I'll just, you know, talk about it in terms of, of entanglement. When, so when you look at the characteristics of, of entanglement, the things that are, we are being entangled, we have technological entanglement, societal entanglement by way of religion, race, wealth, politics, economics, healthcare, governance, diplomacy, and our military is also entangled. So entanglement times exploitation at the power of two where we're exploiting truth, learning systems, the, you know, the connectivity, the surveillance, our communication systems, you know, how decisions are made, our ability to drive wedges and, and manipulate you know, signs and symbols of our country, uh, execute lawfare, create states of disequilibrium in the form of liminality. And again, I talked to you about the virtual colonization and social control a second ago. Uh, all of this is done non-kinetically in cyber, social media, Artificial intelligence, machine learning uh, databases drive a lot of this. Uh, we're seeing the emergence of robotics. Uh, there's going to be nano chips that are going to be put in everything that's robotic uh, that can be surveilled by our adversaries. And of course, you know, electronic warfare, signals intelligence, uh, it, you know, space operations, all those things, you know, fall into those categories that can be exploited from an indirect strategic maneuver uh, standpoint. And that's exactly what our adversaries are doing to us. You know, and, you know, the, the, you know, the strategic characteristics is we, and this is a multi-reality warfare thing, is you see one fake avatar after another. The strategic maneuver, com, you know, concept is multiplicative. It's not additive, right? We're not talking addition here. We're talking exponential, you know, multiplicative effects that have, uh, you know, exponential speed, global reach, ubiquitous, they're enduring, they cover all domains. Uh, it's very indirect. It creates systemic shock. Uh, it's very decentralized, and uh, and and it produces, uh, you know, in some cases, you know, life-changing, uh, you know, strategic effects. And so, based on what you said about these these three things: entanglement, exploitation, and indirect strategic maneuver, how do you assess the utility of existing industrial age processes and other? Uh, leadership archetypes. 
Yeah. So, uh, and again, you know, tying the problem framing theme here. Yeah, I see, Dave. I see, you know, these these archetypes collapsing all around us. Uh, these industrial age mental models. So, it, you know, if you think about this from an X and in, in, in Y axis chart, you know, on the X axis axis, you'd had the propensity of the industrial age archetypes, right? The indices that are that are that are that are collapsing on the on the Y axis. You know, you, you'd use time, right? And, you know, I think about it going back to 1939, the start of World War II and kind of walking us forward, you know, 9-11, you know, out to what Ray Kurzweil, you know, talks about in, in his book, uh, you know, The Singularity is Near Out to 2045, uh, where, you know, he postulates that we're going to have uh, this singularity, this fusion of biological and machine intelligence uh, and, and eventually a rupture in, in, in society. But he's, he's on to something that's really, really important. He wrote the book, you know, 15 years ago, and we're seeing a lot of what he what he talked about. So, you know, from a, from a propensity standpoint, you look at fortune 500 companies, you know, back in, you know, as an example, back in 1955, the life expectancy of a fortune 500 company was 60 years. You know, today it's under 20 years, you know, previously soldiers were the ones fighting physical war. Today we see civilian combat combatants, uh, in the form of physical terrorists, but also conducting virtual terrorism in, in, in virtual war, uh, using virtual organizations, uh, you know, virtual personas, uh, you know, that are not tied, uh, you know, to any nation state. And of course, we we still have nation state warfare, but warfare has evolved into the empowered uh, in, individual. And with ISIS, you know, you've seen, you know, the, the attempt to create a virtual, uh, you know, nation, you know. And the other thing is, you know, uh, you know, heretofore, we've had free speech. Now we're starting to see examples of, of, of gross censorship, but the censorship is much, much more discreet at, at the individual level. And it gets to the point where you don't even recognize that you're being censored on, on various platforms. Uh, you know, memes and, or mematic warfare is, is something that's also emerged to, uh, cancel people, uh, to, you know, uh, you know, you know, get them off of the, the virtual radar screen and eliminate their, their, uh, you know, their, their impact, you know, and, and again, you know, the, you know, reconciliation is this notion of the virtual persona versus the human persona, which is more powerful, you know, uh, in, you know, in, in today's world, uh, you know, it's, it's the, it's the virtual persona that carries weight. So, you know, I see process planning models, a recognition, prime decision making, these bureaucratic, uh, hierarchical learning systems, power leadership in, in, in governance models fundamentally collapsing. You know, you also see, you know, our financial, medical, and physical infrastructure uh, being infiltrated and exploited. You know, all of this is, is taking us towards what, uh, you know, Kurzweil talks about, uh, you know, his, his singularity, this this uh, synthesis of, 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 of exponential technological change that's going to take us through this, in, in, into this post-human era. And the things that I see that the adversaries are doing to us is they do have assured connectivity. They are surveilling us. They are exploiting us. And every day we're being virtually colonized and socially controlled. There is a multi-reality warfare paradigm that's emerged, all right, by way of strategic maneuver, okay? And so, you know, it begs the question, you know, who are the real superpowers today going forward? Uh, you know, uh, and, and again, you, you can't think just in terms of, of nation states when we, we try to conceptualize that today. And so you've talked uh, during this podcast several times about the fact that the United States enemies are employing this global entanglement and a multi-reality grand strategy 
just lay that out a little more clearly for our audience, how they're doing that and what they're doing now that's different from what we would consider to be traditional warfare. So, and again, you know, studying this adversary really for about the last 20 years since, you know, 9-11, you know, this stuff has just emerged. And again, it's really kind of exploded here in the last 15 years. But global entanglement and and, uh, multi-reality warfare that employs, you know, a strategic maneuver schema, there's really four major lines of effort, right? Controlling virtual battle space, it is the decisive terrain. Whoever controls the virtual battle space will win every war at pennies on a dollar without firing a shot. So that's line of effort number one. The virtual battle space is a real thing that has a technological structure, a set of technological capabilities, a flow of data, all right, that's uncontrolled, and a sense of time and timing that nobody can predict. As I mentioned earlier, it's it's pure anarchy. So we've got to conceptualize this real thing of virtual battle space that's driving everything uh, in physical battle space. The second line of effort is controlling the perception of the truth. Our adversaries, again, through entanglement, understand our systems. They understand how we learn, how we make decisions, and how we communicate. And they've translated and twisted it into lawfare to, to split the seams of everything that we're doing that's meaningful in my mind. Line of effort number three is this notion of social creation or and a subset of that is cancel culture. And they do that through technological and societal entanglement. They, and again, expanding the box of theory, we need to explore relational dialectics theory, which is actually a, a, a uh, you know, a, a original Russian theory that dates back at least a century where adversaries come in and they drive wedges into your society, which leads to semiotic exploitation where they, ex- adversaries, not only do they drive wedges, they, uh, exploit your signs and symbols, things like the constitution, the American flag, somehow they become, that all becomes bad and they create this state of liminality. All right. The state of disequilibrium where there are no handholds. There's, you know, people ask themselves what's going on around here. And the fourth line of effort, and this is the, this is the summation of this is governance. All right. And through assured connectivity, persistent surveillance, exploitation of every aspect of our life. And I highlighted some of those things leads to virtual colonization and global social control, all right? And they do it through entanglement and the ability to use these systems that I'm talking about to produce multi-reality uh, warfare, multiple f- fake avatars of competing realities, okay? And it, that's lead, you know, led us to this hybrid warfare construct where we're waging war in both virtual battle space and in physical battle space. And so we're we're just about to the end of our time here on Leader Up, Mr. Bannock. But I wanted to ask you about uh, another a theory of war that's fairly old, and uh, it's something that I know our Leader Up audience is familiar with, and that's the what's known as the Clausewitzian Trinity. And I'm going to let you lay out uh, describe what that is. But my question for you is. Is that still a viable way uh, to look at and study warfare? Yeah. So when, when you look at the, the longstanding uh, and revered Claude Switching Trinity, I mean, you've got, you know, you've got the people in the passage, uh, uh, passion, uh, you know, hatred, uh, primordial violence, et cetera. Right. So you got the people, you have the government, reason and politics and, and the military, you know, with, with the subcomponents of, uh, of, of chance and probability. Okay. 
Uh, and that, and that was, you know, a longstanding, you know, model dating back to the Napoleonic era. Right. All right. Today, uh, you, you have, uh, and again, it go it goes back to the entanglement piece, uh, the assured connectivity surveillance and exploitation, uh, where the people, you know, going back to multi-reality warfare, where people are seeing, uh, they, they want to see the presentation of truth in, in its purest sense. What, what is truth, right? Uh, that's what people want to see in that frame. But, but the reality is, is they're being exposed to multiple fake avatars, okay, uh, that, that in, impacts how they think about the world and how they frame and name what's going on around them, all right? That is done through the assured connectivity, the surveillance, and their exploitation of of, of the difference between uh, presentation of truth and the representation of truth and how we make uh, decisions every day. All right. The connectivity of surveillance and the exploitation is a trading the people. It's, it's a uh, uh, trading what the government can do. And right now our government uh, is, I mean, there's, there's several new uh, things that are emerging uh, that are, are causing uh, governance to have to happen at a faster level. Uh, and then, you know, from a military perspective, I mean, this is so pervasive uh, when you think about, uh, you know, the, you know, artificial intelligence and robotics and the things that I've talked about uh, that have absolutely enveloped uh, our, our warfighting system and requires a fundamental reframe. I mean, it, it, it causes that that model that we've we've, you know, uh, held to and revered for so many years uh, to come into question. And, and, uh, you know, I think it's collapsing around us, uh, as we see, uh, you know, the, uh, order of magnitude impacts, uh, that, uh, you know, these, these technological advances are having on us. And so my final question for you, Mr. Bannock is, uh, is this, what, what should the United States army do? What should the United States do and what should, uh, our army do? Uh, how should we reimagine ourselves? Uh, and our role into a into a different new U.S. grand strategy, and how should we uh, relook and learn about changing the form, function, and logic of 21st century warfare? The first thing is is, and, and again, this is not standard military thought, but we got to win the learning war. Uh, you, you've got to you you know if, if we're going to put a campaign out there. We've got to deny our adversary the productive range of learning, uh, where they where they have the ability to learn, uh, you know, consult and and then make effective decisions. Uh, we've got to uh, keep their elites, you know, quote unquote, in crisis, uh, and and the population that we're uh, you know trying to influence in, in a state of work avoidance, where they they essentially don't understand what's going on and and they quit. All right, that's that's a big task. Uh, you know, heretofore we've conceded uh, the productive range of learning uh, because theoretically, you know, we we haven't embraced learning theory as 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 the core element of what what it is we're doing. So that'd be the first step. The second thing that we have to do is we've got to take cyber, social media, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, autonomous systems, uh, nanotechnology, space operations. And we have got to, through a, a design approach, iterative design, a campaign of learning and then into action, synthesize all those capabilities into our own grand strategy and, and strategic maneuver construct. 
that allows us uh, to fight a war with, without, without ever firing a shot. You know, to be able to do that, we need to establish new operating systems. And today, uh, we, we've got a you know outstanding process operating system that uh, is is meant uh, for efficiencies. And, and again, it's really really important. It's not a binary thing. We've got to do it. We've got to have processes, but the processes are meant to deal with technical problems. And our we're dealing with complex adaptive challenges today, and these processes are collapsing under the weight of the technological challenges. So we've got to introduce new operating systems. And today it's a, you know, I call it a big data operating system that has all those capabilities that I just described. Uh, you know, so it'll be, you know, primarily driven by artificial intelligence and machine learning. And eventually it'll evolve to quantum computing. It'll be a quantum operating system that feeds a, a, a very asynchronous design system. And the design system will feed the process system. Now, the processes that we have today in 2020 will not be the processes that we need in 2028 to be MDO capable or 2035 to be MDO ready. These processes that we're using today are collapsing all around us. So all three of these operating systems uh, either need to be reinvented or invented from, uh, you know, from scratch here. Uh, so we, we need a three operating system construct uh, to you know, get the, get the, uh, our cognitive, cognitive footing up underneath us, uh, to be able to fight and win the nation's wars as we go forward. And so Mr. Steve Bannock, I want to thank you, uh, for your time for, uh, addressing our leader up audience, uh, with, uh, that clarion call to action for, uh, the leaders across the army, uh, to, to, to heed these concerns that you've listed. Uh, so thank you for your time. We we really do appreciate it. Well, thank you for your time, Dave. I really uh, really enjoyed it, and uh, you you are are doing incredibly important work. And uh, so thank you. And I want to thank my uh, leader up audience out there. Thank you for listening. And uh, this is your host, David Howie. Join us again next time for another edition of Leader Up. As always, if you have any questions or feedback or would like to learn more about our podcast, please check the description for our email and for our website. Thanks for listening.